Welcome to Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with artists, authors, theologians, political pundits, media people, and assorted others about the lens through which they experience life. My guest is Nathaniel Popkin. Nathaniel is a writer, editor, historian, journalist, and the author of five books, including, most recently, his new novel, Everything is Borrowed. It's a story about acclaimed architect, Nicholas Moskowitz, who lands a major commission but finds his creative drive faltering. The sight of the new project awakens guilty memories, and when he digs into the place's history, he uncovers a 19th century Moskowitz whose life offers strange parallels to his own. As Nicholas grows obsessed with the shadow man, the dual narratives of Moskowitz and Moskowitz, the city's past and present blend in unexpected and poignant ways. It's a great book, and we had a great conversation about it. I give you Nathaniel Popkin. Nathaniel, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, Scott. It's great to be here. The first time we talked, we talked in a much more uh, impressive and well-lit room at the Athenaeum. It's a little different. <laughs> the ceilings wow, were yes. higher. There's no remnants, uh, artifacts from Napoleon's brother. Nothing of this sort here. <laughs> No, so uh, maybe next time we'll do like an airplane terminal or something. Yeah, that would be. Yeah, yeah that would be. There would definitely be some B-roll, um, you know, background noise. Would be great. So you have written a new novel. Everything is borrowed, and let me tell you, I as I was reading it, I had the sense that this is deeply connected to the Hidden Cities project, literarily. So, which is you know a sort of urban history movement you've been involved in at the heart of, I mean, how, is this, what was the relationship between the works? The, the relationship is that it's me, right? So what am I interested in? What am I doing as a writer? What am I seeing? What am I exploring? What am I digging through? And so in a sense, I'm digging through the city, which is for me, Philadelphia, and uh, in in my writing, and, and all of my writing is related to each other. In this novel, I'm digging through a phys- this physical place. I'm digging through some of its history, um, and I'm also digging through personal experience. I'm digging through the characters' lives, and of course, they're related. There are specific things in this book uh, which are treated in Finding the Hidden City, and there are I mean, it's just the way it works with my with my work. I have a a big bathtub uh, of toys to to you know of bubbles and whatnot to grab onto, and that's what I've got. Right? Do you find like in an age of specialization that's increasingly less true for people? I mean, it seems. Well, it 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 is its own specialization. So for me, place um, as a literary. Um, technique or a literary, I I don't want to say device, place as a literary tableau is very important to me. My favorite writers, or many of them, not all of them, are situated and they're using that situation for their work. And this is the case for me with Philadelphia. I will also say, like, here we are living in 2018 and... Uh, there's an explosive amount of voices out there. Finally, uh, you know, white men, for the most part, uh, controlled the literary airspace for all of 
Western civilization, right? And um, only now is literature in America and to some degree other places as well representing the true diversity of voices and people's experiences of types of human lives um, that are out there and in particular types of American experiences that are out there. So for ye old white man like me, uh, I have to get a little bit more personal and I have to probably find something for myself that is special. And uh, that's what I've been trying to do with my work. Can you think of a a piece of literature that you've read, uh, maybe recently or something, where you were frustrated because it it didn't lack placeness. Does that frustrate you as a, as a reader if something seems ethereal? It did, not not necessarily. Like um, you know, as much as I love place, um, I love um, I do like ethereal work. And so I'm thinking right now of um, uh, Andres Newman, who is Argentinian Spanish writer. Uh, and uh, a terrific novelist. And his his best book is Traveler of the Century, uh, which um, FSG put out in translation a couple of years ago. And it's actually kind of playing with this notion of, of place. It's uh, uh, The character arrives in a German city that might not be a German city, that might be in this time, might be in another time, and actually... As he's walking around, he he discovers that the streets keep changing, and so, of course, this is the feeling one has when one is being a traveler. Uh, one is one thinks he he or she knows uh, what what's what and doesn't really. So I don't mind it. Uh, in fact, I'm quite open to um, all different kinds of things. On the other hand, um, right now I'm reading The Chandelier, which is Clarice Lispector's second novel. And was just put out in translation uh, this a couple months ago uh, by New Directions. And um, the story, there is no story. It's uh, an internal monologue, but that internal monologue is connected to the place, which is a kind of like manor house where the main character is living. And that that connection between her inner monologue and the physical landscape, the house, the woods, the fields is really, really important and they reflect each other. So um, I can go anyway as a reader. Yeah, I was thinking of a, a, a novel that came out like a year or two ago, the throwback special with Chris Backhelder. It was about these guys that like reenact this famous play where Joe Theismann got his leg broken in the oh, Super Bowl. Oh, right. Uh-huh. And, I can't even watch that. And yeah. they go like, and they, but it's very interesting because it's just, they stop off at a holiday inn off the 95 quarter it's a place less book it's a very dialogue driven character kind of thing but so it's very, but philadelphia plays is like a character in this novel in a way like new york is often a character in woody allen films like it's a character looming in the background right absolutely i mean it it, it is um my you know it's alive in this book it's alive to the protagonist nicholas moskowitz it's uh not understood and then the other, the, the sort of shadow character um, of Julius Moskowitz, um, who is an immigrant uh, from the late 19th century, you know, he ends up living his entire adult life, basically from his early 20s or maybe late teens even. It's it's hard to say from the historical record because this character is based on a real person. Uh, you know, for the next five decades— 
he lives within an eight block radius and probably accidentally becomes part of the place that he could not have ever imagined, you know, on the, when he was 10 years old, thinking about the world. Uh, and so he becomes part of that place and that place becomes truly part of him, right? It shapes who he is. It shapes his decisions. And one of the ideas of the novel is how to live a just life. Nicholas is an architect, a contemporary architect. He's utterly, well, he's experiencing a creative block, but he's also utterly dissatisfied, right? Is this, is this like combination creative block and sort of midlife crisis? Because like, it, it seems like more, not just creativity, but he's looking and taking stock of his life, not just his work, but his relational failures, his sense of loneliness. Absolutely. I mean, so it, it all comes crashing down on him, right? As he's trying to to confront uh, a commission to build a building, right? And it happens that the place where that commission is forces him to confront those other aspects of his loneliness, um, of cruelty that he's fostered on other people. And so he's trying to figure out this, um, how to, a way out, a way out to um, redeem himself, maybe from mistakes he's made and maltreatment, and also to find out what it means at a professional level as well in this technical world, where in fact, you know, if you asked about literature and placelessness, one of the interesting things, of course, we're living in a time in terms of uh, architecture and landscape design, where folks are really focused on the authentic, and they want buildings to feel like they could only exist in the place where they're being built. But at the same time, there's this overpowering layer in the profession of, of technical things. Yeah, you have this and, one scene in the book, it's great, where he, he, he goes in the CAD thing and he, he puts all these keywords and everything. And he, design, he just mocks up this whole thing that he's like, it, 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 it's perfectly proportioned and everything, but it's just, I, it's unoriginal. It has no kind of, it was just, it was sort of regurgitated out to look, it's like a fall authenticity. It's a full authenticity. It's a f it it, and he's he becomes really tired of it. So he's trying to figure out okay, well, how I do this in a, in a in a more authentic in an actually authentic way. How do I make decisions as a artist in essence or an architect, which he is, um, it, w without having to adapt these notions, this, this jargon filled notions about sustainability. I mean, these are important things, but he has to find a way to transform them for himself. And so he's looking f and for him, the Jew there's a Jewish layer in the book, which means that his, so his, his lens, which he's only really discovering is kind of a Jewish one. And that is a search for justice. And he discovers in essence that this other character who had lived long before him, Julius Moskowitz, um, you know, had kind of figured that out. He had been an anarchist who had actually uh, taunted uh, uh, the the religious into uh, into self betrayal. They attacked him physically on oh, Yom Kippur, right? And, um, Yom Kippur, yeah. and so he he's now living with this uh, kind of ache that he had provoked them in such a manner. He be, he makes a change in his life. It's not clear if it's truly a religious one or or another way of finding justice. But what Nicholas sees in Julius is a man who committed himself to a community to make it better, to foster justice, and that's what um, Nicholas is searching 
for or stumbling upon in essence. And you, you get the sense that, that part of what, what we have in Julius's story is someone who, even though he's an activist, right, he seems much more like an object than a subject. Like things are just happening to him. And, and then as he goes through this trial, oh, oh my gosh, there's some self-awareness. And it seems like Nicholas is also that way. He, like, life has happened to him. Uh, he's his, his first love. He's very, uh, she's a Kierkegaard scholar. I mean, she loves Kierkegaard and Kierkegaard is also in the backdrop and, you know, the whole sort of, you know, radical subjectivity. And, and Nicholas seems like he's often lived in radical passivity uh, and, and not, and, and is looking back at the, at, the, at, at the trail of that passivity. That's absolutely right. Um, both characters have this strange passivity, even as they're searching for actions that will help change their lives. And, you know, that's a idea that I wanted to explore in literature, because as a human being, as a sensitive, I guess, human being who, who often, you know, you know, you might wake up one day and say, okay, today I'm going to make this change in my life. I'm going to act better. I'm going to act differently. I'm going to be kinder. I'm going to be more, more joyous. I'm going to not get stuck, you know, for the 4,000th time emotionally or whatever it is, right? And, and it's so hard. It's so hard to make a break behaviorally, cognitively. Uh, and emotionally. And so um, both of these characters carry with them. And that's why they're somewhat excruciating characters and maybe sometimes bothersome to the reader because they they do seem passive. Now, Julius, his passivity as it's received by the reader may be a problem of writing. Well, he's a second character in the book, right? He's not the protagonist. And He's an historical character. So the view of him from Nicholas is of in the distance. He's seeing him as utterly formed by the world he he's living in, and he's not seeing him necessarily as, although he imagines him in prison, he imagines how he's facing his family when he comes back. He imagines how he decides to an, uh, stop being an anarchist provocateur after he's jailed, uh, during the second um, protest that he's part of, uh, and become a different kind of man. So the fact that Julius does make a turn is really interesting to Nicholas. And therefore, Nicholas in his passivity is is seeking a model. Yeah, and what's interesting to me is that I think this is probably a, a lot of life changes are actually probably not the result of sort of determination and self-help master or something, there's often serendipity involved. And in his lostness, he's in the Philadelphia library and, and comes across this character and historically. And then all of a sudden this thing he was not looking for becomes the window into his own soul. And oftentimes, right? Like it's, do you think that oftentimes our own awakenings happen less from just sort of grit and pulling up ourselves by emotional bootstraps and more being attentive to what's around us? Uh, Scott, yes, absolutely. I mean, uh, you're on it, right? Like, so we try really hard, I think. Well, I think grit and determination are important factors in, in one's life in, in, in some aspects, right? Like, that's how you achieve what it is you want to achieve for all of us, right? If you want to do something, you have to really work for it, work really hard. On the other hand, if you're if you're closed off to the world around you, you're not going to notice. And the, the, of course, this is a novel, and so it's all 
constructed. It's constructed for uh, this character to who is sensitive. Like that's one thing he's got going for him. So he's sensitive and he, though is a little bit emotionally shut off, is becoming aware of this. So he stumbles into the story of Julius not looking for it. Just out of his own exasperation, he ends up at the library, maybe also following behavioral patterns from his past. He goes there when he, he needs, you know, some quiet. And he ends up discovering, um, he, 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 rationally, he's looking to connect to the history of the place where he's supposed to be building this building. And he stumbles on this other person with the same last name, Moskowitz. And he becomes intrigued by that. And if, and it's serendipitous. If, and I, I do think, you know, if you follow, if you look at your life and you see how you got from A to B, it isn't always because of grit and determination. It's very often because you made a, a half-second decision or you met someone accidentally and that accidental completely accidental meeting has led you to somewhere else. Love is that way, right? And so he's also, um, in his sensitivity, is aware of this woman who works for him, Nadia, and Nadia reminds him of his uh, original love, uh, Ava. It's interesting. I was, I think of the title, Everything is Borrowed. I was, David Letterman has a new show on Netflix, which is fantastic. It's called My Next Guest, and his first interviews with Barack Obama Right. And Obama said, you know, that Dave, I feel like both you and I, don't you feel lucky that you've been? He's like, no, look, I, Obama said, I think I'm pretty talented and I've worked hard, but also a lot of where I've gotten is just luck. And if you don't realize that, you know, that really will, you'll have a kind of malformed perspective and character. And I think you get this sense. I mean, I, I remember hearing you say in the Hidden Cities book, like, that, in Philadelphia, you live in a borrowed city and you have this sense of receiving, right? And, and, and it seems like, the piety that would be uh, that that this sort of sense of borrowedness would evoke is gratitude, right? That you would that you wouldn't see yourself as the self-made um, automaton, but that you see that you're constantly uh, receiving and somebody else is receiving from you, right? That consciousness of the way cities work in that regard is really important to me. That is to to uh, summarize, you know, uh, you come to a city, you live there, well. In, for most places in the world, when that unless it's a brand new city, of which there are many, but um, you're inheriting someone else's world. And they've built the buildings, they live their lives, they press themselves into the space in all different kinds of ways. Their children, their families, they formed it. Their tastes, their dreams are represented in that place. Especially in an old city, you're, you, it's, 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 it's really literal. Like, Someone else's idea of what a house should look like or a street or a store or a park is what you accept when you move there. And the, the lovely thing is for some cities and not all, and it really depends in, to some degree on scale, you can imprint yourself onto that as you, you receive it, as you say. If you're smart, you're grateful for it. If um, you're, you have a sense of suppleness to your life, you can see how you can interject yourself into it. There's always a desire to change. One of the ethoses of um, Philadelphia historically is the desire for improvement, which probably some people would laugh at, but Philadelphia, its psyche of the 18th and early 19th century was really predicated on this notion of improving, you know, create a rational grid, create parks for air, um, then invent things in all different fields and ways of, uh, to improve the life for people 
doing all from farming to manufacturing to living, you know, and this constant search for improvement means that you're taking what you've received. Hopefully you're recognizing what's um, really nice and wonderful about it. And then you're adapting it for your own life. And maybe you're leaving something better or different for the next generation to come along. And that seems like it's what Nicholas winds up aspiring to do. He, he wants to make something that's sensitive to what's been and that will continue the story of what is and what will be, not sort of just do something in the moment that's fat. It's fat. Even though, again, the fall authenticity, like, oh, it'll look very, you know, it, 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 he wants really to be part of, uh, you, say, you say Philadelphia's an accretal city, right? He wants to be part of the accretion, wants to be a, a real part of the layer that, that contributes to the firmament that stuff will rest on. Yeah, I mean, he's he, the, the, the commission that he's um, got is to build an apartment house on a parking lot. And um, he stands there, uh, uh, and he sees in his mind exactly what it is he would build, and it feels to him, you know, laden with cliche, like, and it sickens him. And all of a sudden, do you he, walk around Philly, Philly, and see things like that? Because I know you walk around our tent state. Do you, do you see the? Do you, can you imagine in your head the kind of project that Nathan that um, that um, Nicholas's client? wants bill oh sure <laughs> of course <laughs> i mean yeah i mean that's probably how i was able to see through Name his names eyes. <laughs> um uh, well there's lots of uh mediocre things and he just you know the mediocrity um terrifies him you know because he has high expectations for himself and he had been acclaimed he had won some awards he has he had uh, a lot of confidence as a young architect and to the notion that he, he's just going to build this thing and assemble these parts to it and put it there. He's just not at this, in this moment in his career, in his life, he, he won't make that sacrifice, right? It, it, he can't bear it. It's not to say that another time in his life, he wouldn't have done it, but in this moment when the novel is constructed, it, it's not, it, it comes to him as a, a front. And so he begins to push back and then he's looking for, and the way he sort of, discovers a different path is by inserting himself more firmly, more literally in that accretion. And so it comes to learn that there's a connection between Julius Moskowitz's family and his life, his own life as a younger man at university, because the house that he had lived in was the house of Julius Moskowitz's daughter, where she died of cancer. And when he sees that address, he realizes that 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 house is the way for him to begin to recover personally and deal with uh, the personal cruelty and um, that he forced upon someone who was very close to, and also as a professional and creative way out. He's going to do something with that house, which is going to restore his sense of well-being, possibly, or at least lead him in a new path. There's a great passage in the book where he's reflecting on what his first love, Ava, taught him at Kierkegaard and how there's a difference in recollection and repetition. And it, basically, recollection, right, is sort of romanticizing. And repetition is like when you find the real love and you and you live into that. You know, you continue this 
you're living in that subjectively again and again, you know, and I guess the higher and deeper comes in the, in the again and again. Right. I mean, so it, it's interesting because it seems like there's a connection there between love and self-understanding and architecture in the book. Right. Yeah. I mean, um, that's the, th- I mean, for one, I would say this, uh, the wonderful thing about that notion of repetition and here's a sort of self comment, right? Like, the transference, the sort of psychic, um, maybe transformation is a better word, that one has as a writer or an artist is through repetition. You do it, you do it, and some at some point you, you begin to hit this, this vein, which, I hate to say this, feels godly in some kind of way, right? Yeah, there's transcendence. There's you, transcendence. Yeah, yeah. And... Um, that's what repetition is. And so for a creative person like Nicholas, he understands that you, you keep working, you keep working, you keep working and you keep figuring it out. And eventually you're transcending into some point of rapture. And And, this is where kind of, you know, if, if stereotypically, I mean, this is painting with a really broad brush, but if you think of sort of this Cartesian Kantian legacy in Western philosophy, where, the whole thing is subject, subject versus the object, and you're out there alienated from the thing. And it seems like when you get in these transcendent moments, that that gets blurrier, right? Artist and subject, like giver and receiver. It doesn't. Whereas oftentimes we feel uh, so cut off from the world. The the most, the greatest, some of the greatest time, some of the times I felt the most buoyant were after writing a really great sentence or paragraph, and that connection physical through the hand, though I type, onto the paper. I mean, I could be filled with an, an incredible energy that I never really get from anything else when that happens. And that's from repetition. It's interesting. There's a passage in the book where Nicholas is watching his colleague, Nadia, and she's drawing. and He can't really draw like her. He's an architect who can't, who really struggles with drawing, right? And 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 there's the sense in which Again, the object-subject thing is blurrier for her because she can the kinetics of the of the pencil actually, you know, connects her with what she's doing. And she's she gets at that too. I mean, he. This is a facile critique of architecture in America. That is that kids are architecture students are trained on CAD and they're trained less, though still, to draw by hand. And I don't really have anything important to say about that. I'm not sure whether one is better or worse. But Nadia comes from Lebanon. She went to school in Lebanon and in Tunisia, trained as an architect, and then came to America and went to architecture school. And um, and she was taught to draw by hand. And she and that's and and she also was taught a and they Nicholas and Nadia have this conversation. Nicholas in his lost state, which is where we find him. And unfortunately, where Nadia... This is so much like Divine Comedy, too. I mean, you you know, where it just... Don said, you know, I was just like, one day, I'm like midlife, I'm lost in the woods, right? I mean, like, and you, you, you have the sense with him that he just woke up lost in the woods. Right. And unfortunately... And even when he looks at familiar places, like the happy... By the way, do you frequent the happy rooster? Do you, did you used to? Oh, I, I go there sometimes. Sure. I love the karaoke there. On I think it's I've never been to the karaoke. It's for our listeners there are uh, Philadelphia people. It's a great bar, like 16th and Sansom, right? Yeah. But, I mean, even when he's looking at 
familiar places, he feels lost. Like you can tell that it's palpable. He, and he's, deta- right. he's detaching from himself. And so, and that's unfortunate for Nadia because she wanted to work for him because um, he had a great reputation and, and he really charmed her. And, and she really thought working with him was going to be great for her career. And she had felt like she had something to bring into his office. And now she's discovering his, this detachment that he's going through and this crisis. And, um, and so, and she's, and she, and and she's she's going to quit right she's had enough and and she says to him you know you don't understand how hard we work how much the the way we learn where i come from and how seriously we take it and for that reason she cannot accommodate his mood she can't accommodate his crisis he's offering to pay her and maybe implicitly that He'll pay her and finally get his shit together, and then um, there'll be work for her to do, and it will be good, honest work that she was trained to do. But she can't put up with that because her training has been too serious. And that training, and I'm just you know reminded of this now, is about repetition. That they give a label on it in their discussion that it's tenacity, but it's it's really repetition. It's it's learning. It's deep deep learning of the kind that I think is missing from American education. Yeah, right? Michael, Michael Polanyi, the philosopher of science is, right, has this book called tacit knowledge. And he says like, basically all of our knowledge is either tacit or built on ta- tacit knowledge. So I know more than I can say, like, you know, and I have people that study Polanyi, they talk about, they just did this radio show once about this person that like would, would go choose the wood. He and his wife build violins and he just knows the wood. And he's like, you could, if you could extract all the data from his mind somehow, you still wouldn't know what he knows because there's the way it fits together is tacit. Right. And you can't, it's, and it's built through this repetition. Yep. That's right. That's right. And so having experienced that, she's not willing to put up with his baloney, you know, <laughs> you can say bullshit. This is an NPR. <laughs> Baloney's good. Yeah. Is there, there's this passage that stood out to me, and you're, you're talking about, it's in the middle of the book, and you're talking about these, uh, these anarchists. Um, you say that uh, to liberate themselves, they must reject their religion. The anarchists will eat and drink all night and day in lavish celebrations. But by rejecting Yom Kippur, instead of simply ignoring it, they also admit to being bound like anyone tied to religious tradition. Now, I, as I read that, I thought it seems like there's a slightly tragic tone to that. And is the tragedy the lack of self-awareness? It's not that they're it, – it, 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 it's because they don't realize – it's not whether or not they're positioned in or outside the tradition. It's that they don't know they're bound by it in a way that it's not freeing the way it is for an adherent that really gets it, the transcendence or one that finds the transcendence elsewhere. That if, that if it's kind of, if your search for transcendence is this kind of adolescent rejection that really you're not transcending anything at all. Yeah. They're obsessed with that, which they're rejecting. And that obsession is capturing them and holding them back just as much as if they were adherents in a, in a way in which tradition and religion can be stifling. So they're being stifled by it too. You know, they're, they're, um, they're as much bound. I mean, they're holding their protests on Yom Kippur. Now, if they're trying to make a point. They're trying to take down the power. 
They're trying to expose the power. They're trying to um, express their disgust with this inheritance, this inherited tradition, and the way it is uh, anti-modern, the way it holds people back, the way it's irrational, seems ridiculous, uh, implicitly encompasses a power structure that they find wrong, um, and they're rejecting it. But in rejecting it, what do they do? They hold Yom Kippur balls. They go dancing. They uh, open, as Nicholas did, uh, their peddler stands and read what he, what they called pure prayer, which were tracts of anarchist literature. And so they're using the same language. And I just found it really interesting. It seemed to me that they weren't really coming free. They were as much bound to it as those people who were inside the synagogue. They were all locked up in the same system. And sometimes I feel that way with activism, right? Like I feel like we're, we're not, we're not able to transcend the situation. We're locked up and politically in the United States right now, we're locked in this, in this battle, which we can't transcend um, because we're all connected to the same arguments from one side or the other. And that's what we're discovering about Julius and the anarchists in that moment. I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here? If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month or more? It's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going. And you can help launch several other podcast projects I've got in the works. So I invite you to be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you, David Babico, Ellis Brazil, David Zoll, Sari Graham, Peter Steigerwald, Samantha Blythe, David Norling, Charlotte Donlin, Barry Stewart, Larry Rule, Stephen Lipless, John Schneider, Ben Crosby, Liam O'Brien, Jim Cress, Stephen Rowe, Ben DeHart, Jordan Morseberger, Josh Redder, Jennifer Underwood, Kai Whitpenig, Simone Garabedian, and Jim Kirk. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening. And now back to the show. Is this part of the tension of modern life? I mean, I think of, you know, Jonah Goldberg, when it enters the National Review, has this new book on this, sort of basically the Enlightenment Project and how it's the sort of politics of freedom they are, are, are being attacked from the left and the right. There's a kind of populism on both ends of the spectrum that that are, is in real tension with the broad sort of enlightenment project of individual liberty and freedom. But I wonder, you know, he talks about how romanticism is a, a, a reaction in many ways, like Herder and the nationalism is to something that is unnatural. Humans are naturally tribal, right? And this universal sort of politics of freedom seeking, it, it's, it's kind of unnatural. And so, and yet, and yet it is our better angels. And yet, 
it can leave us longing for something of the pre-modern. And, and, and you kind of write, so many of us are wandering around uh, like, like Nicholas, lost. Detached. Detached, because it, it's, it's hard to sort of be a modern person and still have the kind of pre-modern transcendence, you know, that, that deeper traditions seem to cultivate. Yeah. Of course, one person's freedom is another person's prison. Uh, and we see that uh, as we look at other periods in the history of cities in the way that, um, you know, particularly around race, like one person's freedom to go live in a neighborhood felt like a violation of that other person's freedom to live without that person. It's a reactionary position uh, of that ultimately uh, took form uh, as white flight. But um, so I think freedom is, is really a, a really interesting issue. I think what contemporary people on the left are saying is that, well, you're not really allowing, f- I mean, what I know what you're asking, you're asking about sort of, the need for communal for community versus the need for individual freedom, and, right, right, and how those things are intention, but and, and, and I, we wouldn't I, want to live without either of them, and we wouldn't want to live without either of them, and they're both complicated. They're complicated by each other, um, but they're also complicated notions, like who's going to be in that community and who's not. Um, and and so I'll, I'll say this: um, one of the interesting things about cities is the degree to which they give you. Um, a balance between those two things. So in, in my first book, Song of the City, I had this notion of the infinite versus the parochial in terms of the way a city is experienced. And some cities are more infinite, like, and you become more like this sort of free actor, free ranging person who lives maybe, you know, in a high rise or, and doesn't know his or her neighbors. And, um, you know, has relationships that are detached from place. And then the parochial, which anchors you to a neighborhood or a stoop or a house or a block or whatever it is, some cities are more, you know, balanced in that way. All cities give you a picture of both and an ability to go in and out of them. And so in one sense, cities are wonderful ways of mediating that tension that we all have between our need for community and our desire to be free. What's the phrase? City air breathes freer. Oh, is that right? Yeah. 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 But there is something about that, the, 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 the liberty to float between those worlds. And, and you can float between them and maybe in different parts of your life and different times of your life, it's more valuable to, to be in one or the other. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think that's, I mean, I think that's absolutely the case. So your own relationship to Judaism, because Judaism, again, is one of these characters in the, I mean, could you say something about, I mean, about that? I mean, I knew, I know you grew up in greater Philadelphia. Was that like, was, was your home, what was the level of observance? How did that play? I know you studied philosophy too in college. I mean, how did all that gestate to which Judaism becomes a character in a book like this? It's a really, it's some, it's a question I need to learn how to answer. Um, I grew up in an unobservant house. Um, my parents, my mother, get her, you know, she gets hives um, from religious activity. She has no interest or desire, and yet, and yet, she can identify who's a Jew and who's not a Jew. You know that that kind Absolutely. of that kind of um, sensitivity, that lens through which she she sees the word the world. Uh, my father grew up in orthodox. My mother grew up in a in a completely. Uh, 
a religious household, a family of retailers, and in re- if you're in retail, as as a lot of Jews were, particularly a century ago, uh, well, you adapt. So Christmas is really important. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and um, well, thank God now yeah. we can say Merry Christmas again. Yeah, America's well, great yeah, again. Right. <laughs> um, uh, right. Well, I think there's some anti-Semitic undertones to that. Did you think? Uh, yeah. Uh, so. <laughs> Uh, so, but, um, you know, my mother grew up in a, in a, you know, non-religious household though. My grandfather paid for the first two, um, installations of stained glass in the, in the synagogue where I grew up going to Hebrew school and, and, uh, and to once in a while to high holidays, but even that very infrequently. So my father grew up in an Orthodox household and, he rebelled against that. He hated it. So both of my, neither of my parents cared for religion very much. Other members of their, uh, my father's family did my mother's family, not at all, but there was this, but, but there was always an identity of being Jewish. And for some reason they sent me to go to Hebrew school and to get a bar mitzvah. I don't know why. And and when I was going through it, it's funny because you have, you know, Nicholas kind of, has a similar experience, right? He's got this awkward relationship to that practice. Does the he, 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 he find it confusing and weird? Kind he, of. he find he doesn't know why he's, he's. First of all, his father is Jewish, his mother is not, and his mother has disappeared. You know, and he's really being raised by his father. And for some reason, his father decides that he, he should have a bar mitzvah, and he has to find a special rabbi who will bar mitzvah someone um, whose mother is not Jewish and. You know that thing, that kind of thing exists. So um, Nicholas um, also has this latent Judaism that he begins to discover through Julius. For me, being a writer has been well. First of all, when I married my wife Rona, who had a much more active Jewish imagination, a much more active Jewish cultural presence in her life through her upbringing. Not religious, but much more present. She has led, has helped me to find a way to be Jewish in the world. She and she might not recognize that, but you know, you live with someone for a long time, and you begin, you know, you you find a way to um, absorb it. And for me, absorbing it is is and representing it is by being a writer, which is a kind of strangely Jewish thing to do, like, because you're reflecting, you're analyzing, you're critiquing, you're rewriting, writing and rewriting. I mean, the the Jewish text, that's how it works. And so I think that's what I do. Um, Not intentionally. I certainly never set out to be a Jewish writer. I don't think I think of myself that way. But this book certainly has quite a lot of Jewish themes in it. The next novel, uh, which is called The Year of the Return, has a Jewish family and and an African-American family at the center of the story. Um, And there are some Jewish themes in that, too. Yeah, I I think it's different to be a Jewish writer versus a writer who is Jewish, right? Which is a different thing because it... it, it, I think of this... I, I I think there are writers I know who are Christian writers... Very explicitly, written. and then I, I think I know great writers happen to be Christian, and I'm sure that stuff plays into the background. I mean, and sometimes in the foreground, but it's not. 
the self identity marker is different. Like it's 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 more nuanced. Yeah, I don't know what I am. Uh, I think I'm. Ex- I think literature is allowing me to express something Jewish inside of me. I'm not sure exactly what that is. Um, and I, you know, I was a philosophy major, right, in college, and so the search for search for knowledge and the search for understanding. I'm not going to say truth because it's too cliched, but the <laughs> the search. You have a great line of the book that, by the way, they're talking about cheesiness and irony, and how like it's become cliche. Being ironic and detached has become cliche. I love that line. <laughs> and that was you know for them in the 1990s yeah. they were reflecting on on that. But um, so uh, I. What I do is, you know, what you do, what anyone does as a writer is just keep searching, rewriting. It's repetition, I guess. You know, you keep digging, searching, writing, forming sentences. And in one moment or the other, you might transcend. And so that's maybe that's not a, maybe that's not really a Jewish thing, but I think it is. I mean, when you think about the rooms full of Torah scholars, in New York or in Jerusalem or wherever they are, and they're reading and reading and reading and reading and reading and thinking and reacting and questioning. That's what the act of being a Jew is. I don't, re- you know, I don't really go to religious services. Uh, I still, I can't, you know, that doesn't really work for me. N- none of that kind of thing works for me. I wonder if, you, if, the if you see the attention to the particular also as something jewish and that and that you you think of judaism as opposed to something like buddhism or hinduism or platonism where particularity is a problem to be overcome right or or, or, or something to be transcended into oneness whereas you know you read the hebrew bible that's never the goal you know that 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 particularity place you know it, it's you know it's you don't go to an ethereal realm there's a hope for the the recreation of this world and its particularity and so the, it, there's an earthiness to judaism that uh, and this is what i think is at, at the heart of christianity there's a struggle between it, it, it the inheritance it takes from the hebrew bible in particularity and then this universal universalizing impulse right oh yeah i i mean plays into i'm a earth person um and I do live in the concrete real world. My investigation of cities comes from that. Judaism is a religion of laws. Its stories take place in places um, and with real people. And um, those places matter. Those places are still fought over and marked on a map. Uh, Jewish people tend to live very much in the real world. And when there is transcendence, it is through particularity. And for me, if ever there was a moment in which I could decide, well, what are you going to do with your life as a writer? Everyone needs to choose something in this world. You have, you have to be known for something. Of course, I chose a thing, a real thing, a city, right, to, to investigate from all different points of view and, way, and ways of investigation. It, it it's interesting because I think reference to Dante aside, I think Nicholas, the main character in this book, has a, a, a uniquely modern problem, right? I think in in that the midlife crisis is something that 
I, I, I think it seems that our culture is more conducive to it because you, most people in world history didn't have to make the amount of choices and not just choices about where I'm going to live, where I'm going to just existential. what's meaningful. What's my sacred text? What does marriage mean? What is the value of work? And what is, what is the sacred? What's the secular? Like, so you, it's almost like you've got to choose so many things for yourself and that's the cost and the weight of sort of modern freedom. Right. And so that, that this is a kind of, uniquely modern struggle that, that that i think any a lot of people can see themselves in this struggle right this is not something they oh wow it's, i mean this is something I, i'm wondering like have you felt those struggles like it, how i mean have you had midlife blocks have you felt like quests for me is that i mean how did that inform oh, your own, this character absolutely i mean uh for, first of all i mean what you just described is the basis for the the novel as we understand it and so in a certain sense, a book like Everything is Borrowed is, you know, it's kind of an old-fashioned kind of novel uh, in that regard, uh, though it uses uh, maybe some genre-busting techniques and um, delivers a narrative in a somewhat different way. But that, you know, isolated man trying to figure out and make the right choices in the world is the basis for modernity, and um, and so that is sort of what we think of as as the problem the to face in a novel. Will you say this? Because like, so you would that you wouldn't. Say, that's not quite the problem in Homer, right? I mean, these are it's just different, right? That's right. Yeah. No. The, no. For sure. I mean, it, it's bec- and um, it is and it isn't. I mean, I mean, this is not a, a you know a version of you of 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 Ulysses, but um, or of the Odyssey, but uh. You know, in this situation, the protagonist is always facing his internal demons, right? And it's the internal demons as well as the exterior ones that are going to get you. And I would, that's, that feels pretty Homeric. Well, but, but the ordinary though, right? In the sense of, you know, it's like when, when Joyce writes Ulysses, right? It's almost like saying, hey, look, this, this sort of schlep in, you know, in, in, in Dublin is just as deep as some ancient Homeric figure, the struggle is just as real. You, you don't have to go on this heroic journey. That wandering the streets of Philadelphia, f- f- trying to figure out who you are and what the, the true, the good, and the beautiful is, is just as transcendent can be as, as something like you know the Odyssey. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I think that's the way that um, the Odyssey remains relevant. But it, I mean, modernity is kind of based off on that ancient text. So there's a real connection. Um, trying to think what your original question was, because I had something to say to oh, it. I was just thinking about the nature of like, like I read this book a couple years ago, All Things Shining, which is by two Heidegger scholars. And it's a pop philosophy book. They were talking about this. You know, most great, most cultures that, that you inherited meaning. So you didn't you have to go on, a, uh, on oh, the right. same kind of quest. Whereas, whereas everybody has to quest. It, the quest is kind of forced on you in modernity in a way. In pre-modern life, it's not right for for everybody, at least. I guess so. I mean, I hate to, I'd hate to say that. I think that for one, it's a matter of perspective. We think that those pre-modern people weren't faced with their own existential crises and their own choices, uh, and sometimes it seems remarkable to us when we find this person or writer who has. Um, you know, chosen to reflect on his or her life in a way that feels modern. I kind of sense that people have always, traditional or not, had to face some questions about their life 
in a way that probably is no different than the way we do. I do think the circumstances that we live in heighten that feeling uh, of um, of being a man alone in the world. Um, but I, I don't. I'd really. I think that that. I think that the difference between the pre-modern and the modern world is really important, and we can. It helps us to understand history to some degree. It helps us to understand wide movements of history and clashes and to see the way evolution, you know, human beings have evolved. But I would say that also time does not work linearly and progress isn't progression. It's a, we move in circles. Maybe we move like this, you know, and in circles, maybe they move forward towards maybe more freedom, but maybe not. And, uh, so I, I don't think it, it's an easy comparison, and I would not having been a pre-modern person, I can't. I I really would hate to say that those people didn't have to think through similar choices. I think the circumstances may have been somewhat different. Now, of course, they received religion, they received intensive community traditions that, and rituals, and celebrations, and marriage, and death, and all of these things are packed down hard with inheritance. But I don't think that that takes away from their individual agency. No, right. You're right. I think that the agency is in a different context. But I think of like Peter Berger's sociologist book, The Heretical Imperative, where he says, you know, in pre-modern life, it took real guts to be a heretic. You really had to sort of like, it's a courageous thing. Because whereas there's an imperative in late modernity, like if you're not a heretic, you're not authentic, right? You, 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 if you're not, if you haven't made your own way, you're somehow, you know, it becomes, you know. It becomes the sort of conformist of the conformity of nonconformity, kind of and and it's a terrible ache, actually. You know, maybe it's always existed. Maybe it existed in pre-modern um, communities, but this ache to be different, this ache to live authentically. You know, this awful phrase: "I'm living my what is it? I'm my living, best life now. I'm, I'm living my best life." Like, what? I don't like, know what the hell that it, means. It, that, that's. Ex- <laughs> It's excruciating to me because it's like your life is now a commodity that you can, you know, gather in or, or purchase. Uh, b- but, um, yeah, that you is know. The, that's a great insight. It's the last consumer commodification, right? It's kind of, yeah. My, I'm buying myself. Um, because, you know, it's, that phrase is used often in, in, a, in relation to what you can achieve through experience, which is achieved through paying for something. Exactly, exactly. Um, a credit card will be involved somewhere. Uh, uh, yes, uh, most certainly. And so a bank is going to make some money off of it. But um, yeah, yes, it's an ache to be original, to um, to do something meaningful. To and it's and that's a really strong ache. On the other hand, I think there's a, a pushback. You know, there's there's always a pushback and. A lot of people feel different, you know, are, are coming to the conclusion that that's not a healthy way to live. That's not a moral way to live. The cost of someone's desire for that often is destruction. And, it, and its greatest extreme is is ripping the earth apart, is, is the technology that we use that um, ha- has created such rapid change rather than accepting who we are accepting what we've inherited, accepting the community around us, accepting that I myself am not the best, smartest, most important among us. You know, 
I do think that in the postmodern world that we live in, or post-post, I don't know where we are right now, but I mean, we're, there is an acceptance that of the individual, this goes back to freedom versus community, but also part of what the, has been lovely over the last 20 years in the reconnection to cities in the United States, but also in other parts of the world, is a reconnection to the way that we can live with other people. The suburbs are, you know, diffusing. The television, going all the way back to the mid 20th century, the television, which took you out of your, the need for a public space to, to um, be entertained. And then the suburbs, which reinforced that through a physical form. In the last 20 years, a lot of people, not just in the United States and not just in, in hip cities, have discovered the value of what was missing in that scenario. And so isn't that remarkable? Even while this, this push, this notion uh, that Nicholas, the character in this book, keeps facing of, 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 of needing to create something original an authentic, an expression um, that might leave an impact on the world. So yeah, and in, and cities help us really to see those two things happening at once. They remind us that everything is borrowed, and will be Absolutely borrowed again. Right. It's a great book, and thank you for writing it, and thanks for spending some time talking with me about it. Well, thank you for letting me, you know, yap on about it for all this time. I hope <laughs> oh, that it was great. worthwhile. It was great. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you liked what you heard. Please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you found it here. Also, if you could go, please, please, please. It takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, giveandtake.fireside.fm. You can find all the information there. Thanks to Nathaniel for coming back on the podcast. Please check out his book, Everything is Borrowed. It's a great read. And thanks again to you for listening to Give and Take. Until next time, friends, fare thee well.